Chapter Three of The Outlaw of Torn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Umpleby. The Outlaw of Torn by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Three. For nearly a month, the old man haunted the palace and watched in the gardens for the little prince until he knew the daily routine of his tiny life with his nurses and governesses he saw that when the lady maud accompanied him they were wont to repair to the farthermost extremities of the palace grounds where by a little postern gate she admitted a certain officer of the guards to whom the queen had forbidden the privilege of the court there in the secluded bower the two lovers whispered their hopes and plans, unmindful of the royal charge playing neglected among the flowers and shrubbery of the garden. Toward the middle of July, de Vac had his plans well laid. He had managed to coax old Bruce, the gardener, into letting him have the key to the little postern gate, on the plea that he wished to indulge in a midnight escapade, hinting broadly of a fair lady who was to be the partner of his adventure and, what was more to the point with Bruce, at the same time slipping a couple of golden zecchins into the gardener's palm. Bruce, like the other palace servants, considered de Vac a loyal retainer of the house of Plantagenet. Whatever else of mischief de Vac might be up to, Bruce was quite sure that in so far as the king was concerned, the key to the postern gate was as safe in de Vac's hands as though Henry himself had it. The old fellow wondered a little that the morose old master of fence should, at his time in life, indulge in frivolous escapades more befitting the younger sprigs of gentility. But, then, what concern was it of his? Did he not have enough to think about to keep the garden so that his royal master and mistress might find pleasure in the shaded walks, the well-kept sward, and the gorgeous beds of foliage plants and blooming flowers, which he set with such wondrous precision in the formal garden? Further. Two gold zecchins were not often come by so easily as this. And if the dear Lord Jesus saw fit, in his infinite wisdom, to take this means of rewarding his poor servant, it ill became such a worm as he to ignore the divine favor. So Bruce took the gold zecchins and devac the key, and the little prince played happily among the flowers of his royal father's garden, and all were satisfied, which was as it should have been. That night, de Vac took the key to a locksmith on the far side of London, one who could not possibly know him or recognize the key as belonging to the palace. Here he had a duplicate made, waiting impatiently while the old man fashioned it with the crude instruments of his time. From this little shop, de Vac threaded his way through the dirty lanes and alleys of ancient London, lighted at far intervals by an occasional smoky lantern until he came to a squalid tenement but a short distance from the palace. A narrow alley ran past the building, ending abruptly at the bank of the Thames and a moldering wooden dock, beneath which the inky waters of the river rose and fell, lapping the decaying piles and surging far beneath the dock to the remote fastnesses inhabited by the great fierce dock rats and their fiercer human antitypes. Several times de Vac paced the length of this black alley in search of the little doorway of the building he sought. At length he came upon it, and, after repeated pounding with the pommel of his sword, it was opened by a slatternly old hag. 
"'What would ye of a decent woman at such an ungodly hour?' she grumbled. "'Ah, tis ye, my lord,' she added hastily, as the flickering rays of the candle she bore lighted up Devac's face. "'Welcome, my lord, thrice welcome. The daughter of the devil welcomes her brother.' "'Silence, old hag!' cried Devac. Is it not enough that you leech me of good marks of such a quantity that you may ever after wear mantles of Velosa and feast on Simnel bread and Malmsey, that you must needs burden me still further with the affliction of thy vile tongue? Hast thou the clothes ready bundled, and the key also to this gate to perdition? And the room, did set to rights the furnishings I had delivered here, and sweep the century-old accumulation of filth and cobwebs from the floor and rafters? Why, the very air reeked of the dead Romans who builded London twelve hundred years ago. Methinks, too, from the stink, they must have been Roman swineherd who habited this sty with their herds. And I venture that thou, old sow, hast never touched broom to the place for fear of disturbing the ancient relics of thy kin. Cease thy babbling, Lord Satan, cried the woman. I would rather hear thy money talk than thou. "'For though it come accursed and tainted from thy rogue hand, "'yet it speaks with the same sweet and commanding voice "'as it were fresh from the coffers of the holy church.' "'The bundle is ready,' she continued, "'closing the door after Devac, who had now entered. "'And here be the key. "'But first, let us have a payment. "'I know not what thy foul work may be, "'but foul it is, I know, from the secrecy which you have demanded.' "'And I dare say there will be some who would pay well "'to learn the whereabouts of the old woman and the child, "'thy sister and her son, you tell me they be, "'who you are so anxious to hide away in old Till's garret. "'So it be well for you, my lord, to pay old Till well, "'and add a few guilders for the peace of her tongue, "'if you would that your prisoner find peace in old Till's house.' "'Fetch me the bundle, hag.' "'replied Devac, "'and you shall have gold against a final settlement. "'More even than we bargained for, "'if all goes well, "'and thou holdest thy vile tongue.' "'But the old woman's threats "'had already caused Devac a feeling of uneasiness, "'which would have been reflected "'to an exaggerated degree in the old woman, "'had she known the determination "'her words had caused in the mind "'of the old master of fence.' His venture was far too serious, and the results of exposure too fraught with danger, to permit of his taking any chances with a disloyal fellow-conspirator. True, he had not even hinted at the enormity of the plot in which he was involving the old woman, but, as she had said, his stern commands for secrecy had told enough to arouse her suspicions, and with them her curiosity and cupidity. So it was that old Till might well have quailed in her tattered sandals, had she but even vaguely guessed the thoughts which passed in Devac's mind. But the extra gold pieces he dropped into her weathered palm as she delivered the bundle to him, together with the promise of more, quite effectually won her loyalty and her silence, for the time being. Slipping the key into the pocket of his tunic and covering the bundle with his long surcoat, Devac stepped out into the darkness of the alley and hastened toward the dock. Beneath the planks he found a skiff which he had moored there earlier in the evening, and underneath one of the thwarts he hid the bundle. Then, casting off, he rode slowly up the Thames until, below the palace walls, 
he moored near to the little postern gate, which led into the lower end of the garden. Hiding the skiff as best he could in some tangled bushes which grew to the water's edge, set there by order of the king to add to the beauty of the aspect from the riverside, Devac crept warily to the postern and, unchallenged, entered and sought his apartments in the palace. The next day he returned the original key to Bruce, telling the old man that he had not used it after all, since mature reflection had convinced him of the folly of his contemplated adventure, especially in one whose youth was past, and in whose joints the night damp of the Thames might find lodgment for rheumatism. Sir Jules, laughed the old gardener. Virtue and vice be twin sisters who come running to do the bidding of the same father, desire. Were there no desire, there would be no virtue. And because one man desires what another does not, who shall say whether the child of his desire be vice or virtue? Or, on the other hand, if my friend desires his own wife, and if that be virtue, then if I also desire his wife, is not that likewise virtue, since we desire the same thing? But if to obtain our desire it be necessary to expose our joints to the Thames fog, then it were virtue to remain at home. Right you sound, old mole, said Devac, smiling. Would that I might learn to reason by your wondrous logic. Methinks it might stand me in good stead before I be much older. The best sword-arm in all Christendom needs no other logic than the sword, I should think, said Bruce, returning to his work. That afternoon, de Vac stood in the window of the armory, looking out upon the beautiful garden, which spread before him to the river wall, two hundred yards away. In the foreground were box-bordered walks, smooth, sleek lawns, and formal beds of gorgeous flowering plants, while here and there marble statues of wood-nymph and satyr gleamed, sparkling in the brilliant sunlight, or, half-shaded by an overhanging bush, took on a semblance of life from the riotous play of light and shadow, as the leaves above them moved to and fro in the faint breeze. Farther in the distance, the river wall was hidden by more closely massed bushes, and the formal geometric precision of the nearer view was relieved by a background of vine-colored bowers and a profusion of small trees and flowering shrubs arranged in studied disorder. Through this seeming jungle ran tortuous paths, and the carved stone benches of the open garden gave place to rustic seats, and swings suspended from the branches of fruit trees. Toward this enchanting spot slowly were walking the Lady Maud and her little charge, Prince Richard, all ignorant of the malicious watcher in the window behind them. A great peacock strutted proudly across the walk before them, and, as Richard ran childlike after it, Lady Maud hastened on to the little postern gate, which she quickly unlocked, admitting her lover, who had been waiting without. Relocking the gate, the two strolled arm in arm to the little bower, which was their trysting place. As the lovers talked, all self-engrossed, the little prince played happily about among the trees and flowers, and none saw the stern, determined face which peered through the foliage at a little distance from the playing boy. Richard was devoting his royal energies to chasing an elusive butterfly, which fate led nearer and nearer to the cold, hard watcher in the bushes. Closer and closer came the little prince, and in another moment he had burst through the flowering shrubs and stood facing the implacable master of fence. 
"'Your Highness,' said de Vac, bowing to the little fellow. "'Let old de Vac help you catch the pretty insect.' Richard, having often seen de Vac, did not fear him, and so together they started in pursuit of the butterfly, which by now had passed out of sight. De Vac turned their steps toward the little postern gate, but when he would have passed through with the tiny prince, the latter rebelled. "'Come, my lord prince,' urged de Vac. "'Methinks the butterfly did but alight without the wall. "'We can have it and return within the garden in an instant.' "'Go thyself and fetch it,' replied the prince. "'The king, my father, has forbid me stepping without the palace grounds.' "'Come,' commanded de Vac more sternly. "'No harm can come to you.' But the child hung back and would not go with him, so that de Vac was forced to grasp him roughly by the arm. There was a cry of rage and alarm from the royal child. "'Unhand me, sirrah!' screamed the boy. "'How dare you lay hands on a prince of England!' De Vac clapped his hand over the child's mouth to still his cries, but it was too late. The Lady Maud and her lover had heard, and, in an instant, they were rushing toward the postern gate, the officer drawing his sword as he ran. When they reached the wall, de Vac and the prince were upon the outside, and the Frenchman had closed and was endeavoring to lock the gate. But handicapped by the struggling boy, he had not time to turn the key before the officer threw himself against the panels and burst out before the master of fence, closely followed by the Lady Maud. De Vac dropped the key, and, still grasping the now thoroughly affrightened prince with his left hand, drew his sword and confronted the officer. There were no words. There was no need of words. De Vac's intentions were too plain to necessitate any parley, so the two fell upon each other with grim fury, the brave officer facing the best swordsman that France had ever produced in a futile attempt to rescue his young prince. In a moment, De Vac had disarmed him, but, contrary to the laws of chivalry, he did not lower his point until it had first plunged through the heart of his brave antagonist. Then, with a bound, he leaped between Lady Maud and the gate, so that she could not retreat into the garden and give alarm. Still grasping the trembling child in his iron grip, he stood facing the lady-in-waiting, his back against the door. "'Mon Dieu, Sir Jules!' she cried. "'Hast thou gone mad?' "'No, my lady,' he answered but I had not thought to do the work which now lies before me. Why didst thou not keep a still tongue in thy head, and let his patron saint look after the welfare of this princeling? Your rashness has brought you to a pretty pass, for it must be either you or I, my lady, and it cannot be I. Say thy prayers, and compose thyself for death. Henry the Third, King of England, sat in his council chamber, surrounded by the great lords and nobles who composed his suit. He awaited Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, whom he had summoned that he might heap still further indignities upon him, with the intention of degrading and humiliating him that he might leave England for ever. The king feared this mighty kinsman, who so boldly advised him against the weak follies which were bringing his kingdom to a condition of revolution. What the outcome of this audience would have been, none may say. For Leicester had but just entered and saluted his sovereign, when there came an interruption which drowned the petty wrangles of king and courtier in a common affliction that touched the hearts of all. There was a commotion at one side of the room, 
the arras parted and eleanor queen of england staggered toward the throne tears streaming down her pale cheeks oh my lord my lord she cried richard our son has been assassinated and thrown into the thames in an instant all was confusion and turmoil and it was with the greatest difficulty that the king finally obtained a coherent statement from his queen it seemed that when the lady maud had not returned to the palace with prince richard at the proper time the queen had been notified and an immediate search had been instituted a search which did not end for over twenty years but the first fruits of it turned the hearts of the court to stone for there beside the open postern gate lay the dead bodies of lady maud and a certain officer of the guards but nowhere was there a sign or trace of prince richard second son of henry the third of england and at that time the youngest prince of the realm it was two days before the absence of de Vac was noted and then it was that one of the lords in waiting to the king reminded his majesty of the episode of the fencing bout and a motive for the abduction of the king's little son became apparent an edict was issued requiring the examination of every child in england for on the left breast of the little prince was a birthmark which closely resembled a lily and when after a year no child was found bearing such a mark and no trace of de Vac uncovered the search was carried into france nor was it ever wholly relinquished at any time for more than twenty years the first theory of assassination was quickly abandoned when it was subjected to the light of reason for it was evident that an assassin could have dispatched the little prince at the same time that he killed the lady maud and her lover had such been his desire the most eager factor in the search for prince richard was simon de montfort earl of leicester whose affection for his royal nephew had always been so marked as to have been commented upon by the members of the king's household thus for a time the rupture between de montfort and his king was healed and although the great nobleman was divested of his authority in Gascony, he suffered little further oppression at the hands of his royal master. End of chapter 3